Welcome, dear listener, to Weekend at Crombie's 2, The Legend of Crombie's Gold, our summer edition. Pour yourself a glass of Pims, put on the Factor 50, and lock yourself securely in the panic room. Hello and welcome to our spin-off show, Weekend at Crombie's 2, The Legend of Crombie's Gold, where we look once a quarter at the works of a renowned filmmaker, uh, one film a decade across the breadth of his career. I am Hugh, I'm meeting Arthur Digby Lawrence in minutes, and if you think he's the kind of man who tolerates tardiness, you are sadly mistaken. (laughs) And I am Dr James Evans Esquire. This whole thing makes me nervous. Why? Ever read any Poe? No, but I loved her last album. <laughs> little diorama there, James. Good. Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> um, but as we say, we uh, last last quarter we looked at Seven, which is one of the very mm-hmm. earliest films of David Fincher. We're looking at David Fincher across the the whole year. So, having made his big hit in uh, in Seven and uh, and Fight Club, he now moved on and uh, directed and produced Panic Room. So, yeah. well, and this is this is this is Fincher in the two thousands now. So, Seven was the nineties. Yeah. So we had Alien Three, um, we had Seven, The Game, and Fight Club, and now we're in the two thousands where we've got Panic Room to begin with, followed by Zodiac, and then the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So we're going to look at um, again his. The, the director in the round in, in the context of the yeah. film but first we're going to take a good deep dive into panic room itself uh so uh again where to begin this is a this is an intriguing film uh, it's uh mm. so it stars uh jodie foster as meg altman and her young daughter sarah and um, played by Kristen stewart um meg the is soon recently- to be the soon to be um ca- um globally famous Kristen stewart Indeed, yeah. The uh, the, the cast is here is not big, but it is uh, it is weighty. It is, um, yeah, yeah. You're right. It is. But so yeah, so um, Meg is recently divorced, um, and her husband is again fantastically wealthy. He's into pharmaceuticals, so she has a huge payoff, which allows her to go shopping in New York City for a new house for um, herself and her daughter. And they um, they are shown around a, a New York brownstone with about three floors and a basement and elevator and all mod cons, which includes a panic room. Um, what a so, house! It's a lovely house, and uh, again, we'll come to how this house came about. But anyway, this this panic room um, is is shown as like the ultimate in in kind of um in the very rich accessories. Because if you get a home intruder, you just jump in the panic room, you close the steel doors, you've got water in there, your own phone line, you can monitor them through um the video cameras. They can't get in. It is absolutely secure, and you are safe until the police come along. So um this actually freaks Meg out a lot because she doesn't like she's claustrophobic, and the idea of slamming <laughs> steel doors makes her nervous. But um, Although, I'll be honest with you, it. Yeah. It's, it's not just if the, there's an intruder. If you just want a bit of peace and quiet. Oh. <laughs> yeah? I mean, just nobody would know you're in. You could you could call. Oh, I'm, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to be home, probably won't be home for a couple of hours. Just, you know, spend a few hours in the panic room. <laughs> well, that's just the cupboard under the stairs, really, isn't it? You don't, you don't, need, to have, really. well, you know, you don't have video monitors and, and bottled no, water no. Inside, the, inside the cupboard. But yes. <laughs> So yes, um, so they they take the house, notwithstanding, because it's a lovely house. And on sort of day after they've moved in, um, or the night of them moving in, uh, the intruders break in the house because the previous owner was a recluse um, who apparently had a lot of inheritance that has not been discovered yet. 
Um, but um, this has led to uh, three intruders, one of which was his former nurse who nursed him through ill health. And uh, the other one is uh, a... Uh, so the nurse has been played by Jared Leto, um, whose character is Justin, Junior. I think, isn't it? Oh, Junior. Junior, yeah. He has recruited Burnham, uh, who played by Forrest Whitaker, who was, is a, d- a person who basically designs and engineers these rooms. So he found the company who does the panic rooms and recruited him because Burnham has money troubles. And then a third and rather enigmatic person, played by Dwight Yoakam, called Raoul, um, <laughs> who basically just turns up and looks sinister. So uh, Very menacing. Yeah, so the three of them turn up expecting to rob the place, um, not expecting to find Meg and Sarah in the house because Junior can't really work out how many days the house was in escrow. So there's the first wrinkle. Um, and again, the tension ratchets as Meg, you know, he's kind of tossing and turning in her sleep and we don't know if they're there or not yet. But she, she clocks on just in time. Um, and again, as, as the guys are running up the stairs to intercept them, she manages to drag Sarah into the panic room, seal it. They can't get in. You know, they're safe, and that is apparently stalemate. The guys are outside and can't get in. They're inside and don't uh, can't get out. So um, you'd think that's a fairly wrapped-up film, but no, the, um, the 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 plot finds many many ways to to ratchet tension and cause this kind of cat and mouse for the next two hours between Meg and her daughter, and then the three um, the three killer, the three burglars. Um, Burnham, of course, is the engineer, so he knows how to. He knows the weak points of these panic rooms, even though he knows they're basically impregnable. He tries to to hack into the air, co- the, the the vent system, and, and and spray methane gas in there to flush them out. Um, he's defined different um, different techniques, and then further complications happen when young Sarah is diabetic and starts actually going into sort of um, diabetic coma, or at least having serious um, hypoglycemic effects. Um, so her, you know her medicine is outside the panic room. How does Meg get outside to get her the, the insulin shot she needs when this crash? So lots of this goes on um, to the point and Burnham is, is of the three, the cleverest by far of the of the burglars and is actually able to to formulate plans and stratagems as they go on to kind of try and fool Megan. And Megan is also quite intelligent and resourceful, at least, you know, so scared she's operating on quite a high level. Um, well, so it's, yeah, well, Burnham, Burnham has the knowledge, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, Raul has the gun. Yes. Um, and Junior, he's he he. He had the story, but other than that, he's pretty redundant. <laughs> yeah, he's the one that brought them all together because actually yeah. the reason they are there is because this reclusive, um, this reclusive man had millions of his of his inheritance, not in a bank or anything. He put it in the floor safe in the panic room, mm. and that is of course what happens. The burglars aren't there to steal anything in the house; they want what's in the panic room, which again causes this this, this enormous standoff. They can't leave because they need the panic room. They also yeah. can't leave because they think they've been filmed by the cameras that are around the house, so they're compromised. So they can't leave until they get to the panic room and get the tapes themselves. So and Meg what... and Sarah can't leave because they're in the panic because room. they go out the panic room, they're in mortal danger. Yeah. So you have this this enormous conflict of, of yeah of of, of, uh, of priorities. Um, and again, you'd think this is stalemate and no one can get anywhere. But the way the film goes through, there is an enormous amount of cat and mouse being played. Um, and and in ingenious and quite thrilling ways they do this again. Like I say, at one point Burnham tries to flush them out with methane gas just to scare them because he basically hacks into the aircon system and, and sprays this propane into the room. Um, but of course, Raul and Junior are much more blood crazed and like saying more, more, flush them out, flush them out, not realizing, of course, that you know poisoned people aren't much good in opening doors. Um, <laughs> at which point, Meg then responds by by lighting this methane gas, which blows up half the wall um, and burns Junior's arm and everything. So he's now um, it's really badly burnt. At which point, Junior decides he's had enough and and storms out. Um, 
Raul at this point decides he'll shoot Junior. Um, and then so now it's just Raul and Burnham, um, they're complicit in a murder, and then he's ever more keen to get inside the room because the stakes have now risen even further. Yeah, because I think it's fair to say that Burnham is, although he's one of the three intruders, he is the most civic i suppose that's the moral, best way moral, moral the most, yeah yeah moral. that's right he's the most moral so he he's he's i mean despite him actually being a participant he is anti-murder doesn't want anything to do with it, just wants to get the money and go because he has other he has he has reasons custody reasons why he why he needs the money yeah yeah and indeed they, yeah the um yeah, he is not comfortable at all with doing Megan Sarah harm. Um, but on the other hand, again, because he thinks he's on tape, actually revealed later that there were no tapes in the camera. So um, you kind of he, they use, there's a moment actually when he, when he actually checks to see if the tapes, and he kind of he you see Forrest Whitaker just slump a little bit, thinking, "I didn't need to be here. I could have just yeah, left immediately." Just and left. It's yeah. a great again. It's lots of little moments like it's not not it's not a lot was made of it, but it's like oh, that's quite yeah. a nice touch. But um, yeah. so we're, we're getting to the analysis here. But as we go on, so um, I say Sarah is going into a hypoglycemic coma and so meg needs to get out also um now burnham and rule they've managed to get hold of um of stephen altman the ex-husband who then mm-hmm. um, meg just about managed to get a call to before the telephone line was cut so he he's turned up to see what's up so they, they beat him bloody and then pull this kind Bruce. of bait and, yeah they pull this kind of bait and switch whereby um they meg is led to believe they've dumped his unconscious body in the bedroom while they go downstairs what's actually happened is they've dressed him in raul's coat or raul they've dressed raul in stephen's coat so that um raul is in fact the body there so when megan thinks the coast is clear and makes a dart to leave the panic room and get the uh, the, the insulin injection mm-hmm. raul kind of is able to leap up and so is burnham and they're able to gain ex entrance into the panic room um with, with sarah with with again a, a near comatose Sarah, and just oh, as the door is, clo- yeah. is is slamming closed, uh, Meg is able to throw the insulin in there. So she manages to persuade uh, Burnham to give her the life saving insulin. But in scuffling with Raoul before they get in the panic room, his gun falls out. So now Burnham and Raoul are inside the room. Meg is outside with the gun. Sarah yeah. is inside at the mercy of these burglars. So once again, you've got a reversal switch. No one is exactly where they want to be. Yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all yeah, they're all as as bet, better and worse off as they were before, but in slightly different ways. This again, this is where um, sort of Meg starts planning um their escape. So she basically locks every door in the house except for one, which forces them to lead out a path into essentially an ambush where she takes her badly beaten up husband as her accessory. So she's able to sneak up and, and deck roll with his own sledgehammer, um, leaving Burnham to to make his escape. And they think they've defeated Raoul but he actually managed to in a pretty terrible way because he already lost a few fingers when the, when the panic room door slammed on it um, and he'd now been clocked with a sledgehammer and knocked off a balcony but he claws his way back upstairs and then just engages in a brutal fight with all the whole three of the Altman family even you know, Sarah gets punched in the face um, Stephen gets knocked over and he's just about to smash Meg's head open with a sledgehammer mm-hmm. when Burnham who could have escaped but chose to come back because he heard the screams came back and shoots Raoul um, yeah. to basically essentially saving Meg's life and then as Burnham tries to escape a second time he's caught by the police and, uh, and that's pretty much where yeah. the, the film wraps well, up yeah the 22 million pounds of um, what are they they're, they're bearer bonds which yeah, movies bearer bonds. love bearer bonds because it's, it's a way of transporting huge yeah. sums of money in little bits of paper yeah so the paper is it's like in a little whirlwind because there's a storm outside as well it's raining and it's windy and all of the all of the money is kind of swirling around his head as he's caught yeah and that's it that's the end that's the end it's, it's left with again a slightly dented meg and sarah looking at new houses um as, yeah. the, as the sun rises over the city but that's that's Indeed. how it ends Yeah. <laughs> 
Has your headphones fallen off? <laughs> no, actually, I had, to, I had to slowly remove my headphones so that I may uh, may shed my my hooded top. Um, oh, to, oh, yeah. Don't worry, I'm still wearing a, uh, a t-shirt beneath. So uh, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> we haven't started the nude recordings yet. Well, you haven't started the nude recordings yet. <laughs> we'll come back to the the overall of the panic room. Is yeah. it's an incredibly simple premise. There is a panic room that the the, the, the people, the good guys are inside and the bad guys are outside and yes. they cannot get in and we cannot get out. And that's it. So the way they stretch that to a two hour thriller is by doing these twists and turns. Like I say, firstly, you have the um, Jodie Foster again. Meg is constantly thinking of ways to to get help whilst in the panic room. She tries to get into the phone line. Um, she tries to signal with Morse code and this kind of stuff. Um, and and they, they they get to a certain. Yeah, it's a, it's a good line in it as well. She go, so she goes, is that. Um... So uh, Sarah's doing the, the Morse code with the light and um, uh, Meg goes, um, what, what, what did she say? Is that, is that SOS? Is that SOS? She goes, no, Morse code. Where did you learn that? The Titanic. Yes. <laughs> the film. It's quite good. That's very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're, they're trying to signal for help whilst in the panic room. And at the same time, again, um, the guys are trying to flesh them out again using the fire, which causes her then to escalate and burn them out. And then they start to become injured because Junior has his arm burnt. It looks like quite a horrible injury, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, so it's, it's this cat and mouse of, of this kind of stuff. And then it escalates even further again when Junior dies and Sarah starts to go into this, this diabetic attack. Uh, so yeah. it, so it's, it's all these kind of... So now it's a case of you can't just wait it out. You can't just no, sit in the can't. panic room. Yeah. So now she's got to get out. But all the guys the guys are also planning because they get hold of so now they get their hold of Stephen so they've got a hostage and they don't just have a hostage they have kind of like a third body to trick Meg which they manage to do and then the this complete spin is when they're trapped in the room and she's outside as one of the, the best moments in it because um, it's firstly Raul gets quite a comeuppance because his hand is, is oh. in the door jam when it slams yeah. shut so he, he so he is he's, his, his right. hand is stuck there and he's in desperate pain yelling open the door to burnham burnham is not doing this because he is now he's you know, once again he's worked out immediately that raul doesn't have his coat in his holster he's going where's your gun she's got your gun she's got your gun however as, as he's wrangling with raul to shout that they bang against the intercom button and he, and meg who's who doesn't know she's got the gun she's in despair thinking my daughter's inside the yeah. room with yeah. his two murderers so she had to his income she's got the gun she goes i've got the yeah. gun and she runs off and gets it yeah so it's, it's all these kind of ways it's done and then the fact that she knows that you know she has to basically barter with burnham to, to give them the, the insulin shot yeah. which burnham does because he's inherently decent and um and actually they, <laughs> he's decent but i probably also worked out if they let sarah die there's no way meg wouldn't just shoot them both yeah exactly so yeah so that it, again is a bit of a kind of chess play going on where where yeah. nobody really has the upper hand both yeah. both both parties have yeah. some yeah. they have some hand don't they but yes. but it, it's not it's not a good enough hand for them to do anything yeah and there's one particularly good scene i think where um i think basically raul was saying you know if um uh we're gonna basically if the police turn up we're gonna kill your daughter right oh, we're gonna yeah, kill her yeah. so make sure you know don't call the police uh etc and of course um her husband did call the police yeah. um and they turn up and you know there's there's two policemen at, at, at the front door and they basically question her and say we had you know we had a, a call there's been some disturbances some neighbors have said that um you know you're not uh, is everything all right we got a call from your husband that said there were three three what we don't know etc etc and then um it's a, it's a it's a really good thing because it goes on longer than you think it would yeah. you would expect the policeman just to leave but she said but the, one of the policemen says you know is there anything you want to tell me that you don't think you can is a sign that you can give me maybe you can blink is that something you could do and um you really want her to blink don't you, you really want her to go just let them know but she can't yeah. do it because yeah. 
that's the problem. And so they, they go, okay, we don't believe you, but there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Although what I, what I caught from that was, is because um, basically, I, I think, Jody, again, Meg answers with something like, you know, oh, that's good training. I can see you do that. What I mean, like if there, were, if there were men inside the house or something. She, she mentions the situation, which the police didn't bring up. And I think that was the tip off because they do turn up later, including the cop yeah, who, made, who made that. The that cop, yeah, yeah. So clearly what she, what she said had communicated that to them. Yeah. But it, it, could also, it could also have passed them by is the thing. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, he doesn't like nod and go, OK, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a nice evening. Wink. <laughs> He's like, OK, we'll be off then. Um, so it's, it's another one of those threads they leave hanging and then again when they they do appear you know just just in time to let all the money fly away um, yeah. but uh yeah you're you're right about that and it's um i'll tell you what again to come to the the, the overall part of it the plot in this is very very tight it's it's mm. again it's, it's superbly just... plotted and i think as, as well as having that that kind of clearly they, they've, they've, yeah, they've had a, they can see you can see the whiteboard with the, the post-it notes on saying who knows what and when who has what power over when yeah, who's yeah, in what yeah. and where so they, they, all that is spread out but also i think one of the, the nice things about this is it stays very true to its basic premise which it establishes like within five minutes which is the panic room cannot be breached and, and, and it, it, it's, yeah it's true and it, well, never, once, it never is it never is once it and once it's closed unless someone voluntarily opens it it can't yeah. happen and that's true yeah. the closer they get is, is when they try and yeah. put the gas in but other than that you cannot open that door and they don't and therefore because it because they could have had that same like you know forest was saying oh i designed it you go into these wires and you can override the switch and it opens it that way and that would be cheating but here's yeah. like no there was only only someone can willingly press that button to open the door and i think yeah. that gives it an awful lot of strength so it really does, and um, that's one of the one of the kind of notes that I've made is is the fact that um, I I think that the film is true to its premise, uh, which is really commendable, because I, there are so many films that um, you're really enjoying, and then something will happen that is totally it, it loses its internal logic, and for me it's all about internal logic. Yeah. So the film itself really maintains that integrity. You're right, the panic room is never breached. Someone has to take an an active decision from inside the panic room to leave the panic room. That's the only way the panic room will be breached. It's a conscious decision. And what it means is, is that the characters, the characters have to, they have to think, yeah. right? They have to think. It, 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 there's no, I mean, I'm not saying that the film isn't almost beyond belief, right? It's a, it's an entertaining thriller, yeah. but I can absolutely accept it because any decision that's made in the film seems to have a logical run through through it. Right. So the, the, the Burnham, when he has one of his ideas, they're not, you know, they're not stupid ideas. They're things that might work. Right. And then um, Meg, when she counters them, it's because she's clever and she's thinking on her feet and she's giving as good as she's got. But they're set that they are they're worked out solutions. Right. Yeah. They're within the world that it's trying to present. And it never detracts on that, never moves away from that. Everything that happens could happen. Yes. Including uh, Junior and Marvel's first plan, which is to get a sledgehammer and try and burrow yeah. upwards into the room. They're trying, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're standing yeah. on a shelf going, we'll go up from the floor. It's like there is, there's three inches of steel. It's like, oh, we'll have a try. <laughs> we'll have a try, yeah, because that's the kind of thing you do, isn't it? You yeah, give it a go. Right. And then when also you because Raul and Junior idiots, as Burnham points out, saying, if two idiots with a sledgehammer could break into this, do you think I still have a job? However, because they've tried this, they leave the sledgehammer on the second floor just they in do. time for Sarah to find it, use it yeah. as a weapon against Burnham, who yeah. then uses it as a weapon against her after she's... Yeah. So it's, it, it, 
it's yeah. the foreshadowing, isn't it? And that's it's an hour ahead. That, that, that difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At first you think it's just establishing Raul and Junior aren't that bright, Burnham is, and they're just trying everything, destroying the house. But actually, no, oh, it was... It was yeah. Uh, and that's something else I was going to mention as well. It, 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 a bit like at the start, you've got Forrest Whitaker's Burnham, his his shadowy bulk, um, you know, uh, going up to the doors and the back doors, etc. It's like a horror trope. It's that same thing. It's the sledgehammer, which is a horror trope, where at some point early in the film, you will see the nails sticking out of the floor and nothing will happen. <laughs> or you'll see the chainsaw um, uh, attached to the wall. And, yeah. and about an hour later... The chainsaw comes into effect. Someone stands on the nail, etc., etc. You know, it's it, you know it. You know when I see when I've seen that, then putting it, you know what that's going to be used for at some point in the film. That sledgehammer has a role in the film, and it does. Yeah, and uh, actually, you know, talking about the again the, the logical steps of it, like I say, the, the three burglars aren't expecting this to happen. They they have to think on their feet too, and it is quite compelling that when they when they work out the panic room shut and they're inside there. They, they they try a few things like yelling at the, the video camera or anything, um, but they don't have an answer immediately either. Not even Burnham think because Burnham in his in his um, experience is you can't breach a panic room. He knows this. He's built them, so they have to think. And while they're thinking, they're doing stuff. They basically they seal the house, so they all grab screwdrivers and nails and start drilling, you know, securing every single door in the house. Because while they're thinking about it, they just they they're adding the pressure of. Well, if you can't leave the panic room, you're not leaving the house either. And um, that was that was quite a nice first step in the fact that they don't just immediately go for them. It's like we're doing stuff as well while you're trying to do stuff in there. Yeah, I'm also very impressed that again, this is a, this is true um, dad behavior is that Burnham just has his disposal several um, power screwdrivers and lots of screws because that's that's what you that's what you need in a dad is like I'll, I'll just nip to the car. Yeah, your shelves a bit. I'll, I'll just get that. And like, big, he just gets a handful of really long wood screws and lots of screwdrivers. Like, wow, that's that, that's good stuff. Do you have lots of screwdrivers and screws? I have, with enough notice, a screwdriver I can charge. But see, that's worse because I'm not Burnham. <laughs> wow. I, I, now, in this household, Emma has a lot of screws and screwdrivers. Okay. I have no idea where they are. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have an electric screwdriver that if given enough notice I can do some DIY around the house I also have um, many teaspoons that if you turned around can normally work <laughs> to screw That's most good. things in at need <laughs> That's just very good <laughs> oh dear. But, um, uh, Yeah so uh, yeah, lo- logical um, everything that happens in it seems to happen for a reason and you can make sense of it and the all of the characters are playing the roles within the film without having a full hand, yeah. if that makes sense. You know, they're, they're all slightly deficient um, in things that they can do, um, which, yeah. And what, one of the other things, which is good, which you mentioned in the kind of, in, in the synopsis is that it, you know, it, in, in principle, Meg and Sarah could just stay in the panic room, but because of, because of Sarah's diabetes, they can't. So, and what, what I like about the film in that regard as well, which is a bit a bit similar to what I like about the plot of the film as well, is that despite it being t- despite it being very tightly plotted, there's almost no exposition in the film. So yeah. you, you, nobody needs to tell you what's happening. So none of the actors describe scenes that are happening in the film, other than saying the panic room is not breachable. And I think part of the reason is because there's a there's a there's like a a a, a bit of the start of the film where the um, where the um, uh, real estate agent is showing 
them round the house with what Which I think is probably Ned's agent. But yes, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only an estate agent is allowed to talk length about length. This, 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 the house and what yeah. they're actually doing is setting outside the entire set of the film yeah um it, we know we know where the floors are we know there's an elevator we know how many where, yeah, the, exactly. where the rooms are we know where to get from yeah. a to b and it's perfect because that's what you need to find out because that's where the entire action that's takes where place. the entire action takes place and so that's all the exposition that's needed you don't need any other exposition so uh, what uh, linking that back to the diabetes thing is there's it's I, I would expect in a in a lot of films that maybe don't aren't quite as good as this it would be played up very early on. She's yeah, got yeah. diabetes. There'd be something that would happen. But in this, it never is. It's it, the audience is given the benefit of the doubt that they understand what's happening. So she yes. wears like a she wears a um, like a blood sugar level kind of monitor on her arm. Yes, she looks yes. like a watch, and you yes. can see you can see it. And and you know it's obvious that um, Meg is concerned about her daughter because she looks at it sometimes. She just says you know calm down, but you're not really sure why. And it's very obvious that she has diabetes. But it's never it's never mentioned. Yeah, and, well, again, I, and the, that's yeah, the, a really good yeah. example of how the plot doesn't. You don't need to be told anything that's going on yeah. because it's so tightly plotted. You know exactly what's happening. You know where everybody is. You know the architecture and the layout of the house. So it all makes sense. Yeah, and again, the the very beginning when they before anything's happened, they're having a, a dinner in the house, and um, Sarah pours herself some full fat coke, and Meg's like, "Stop." And then she yeah. gives a little bit more as a treat. And you think, yeah, that's, that's very harsh with the Coke. What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's that much is dropped in there. But you're right. It, when they're in the panic room, she is fussing over Sarah in a very specific way, saying, how do you feel? You think pins and needles, anything like that. And yeah, it's, it's dripped in there. As you mentioned, some films will go overboard. Have you ever seen Steel Magnolias? I haven't. No, I never watched Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, <laughs> that that's for a different podcast. But again, that that okay. begins with Julia Roberts having a very overt diabetic attack. That is almost the opposite of letting the yeah, audience in on gradually. Yeah, she's that's basically, I mean, basically yeah. trashing the beauty bar. She has this type of attack, and she's like <laughs> thrashing around an Olympia Dukakis and Sally Fields, like pinning her down and forcing orange juice down her throat. And it's like, oh. what's the matter with her? She's diabetic. <laughs> We are laughing. That's my best God. Sally Fields impression, by the way. Also, our, 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 rest in, rest in rest peace. Rest in peace, Olympia Dukakis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> died recently, didn't you? Yeah. To come on to the the production side of it, again, the budget of this movie was was forty eight million, um, and a lot of it went on the set itself because they built the house. Yeah, they did. And which again is quite remarkable. And yeah, a full a full set. And and also. I- I, I read somewhere that because um, the, the production had quite a lot of challenges to it as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, and um, they they had to rebuild part of the house for reshoots, which cost them three million dollars. Yeah. Um, later on as well. So in total, you've got like a nine million dollar house that had been built. I mean, surely that's that must be more expensive than some brownstone houses in the Upper East Side, right? I mean, you think you just buy a house. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then convert it. Yeah, <laughs> but again, you mentioned the production volumes because, of course, um, the character of Meg was not originally to be played by Jodie Foster. Um, uh, Nicole Kidman was cast and, for some weeks, played the part of Meg, um, yeah. but uh, did a knee injury um, and then had to, was replaced by Foster. Um, yeah, and you know, look, I, I don't, I don't know whether. Jodie Foster is better than Nicole Kidman in this or not, right? Who knows? Yeah. So what I'm going to say isn't a slur on Nicole Kidman, but Jodie Foster in this is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. She's fantastic. I, I, I so can't I can't imagine, imagine it. it. Now, I can't yeah. imagine it with Nicole Kidman, even though it might have been a really good 
film and she might have been brilliant in it. Jo- I mean, yeah, Jodie yeah. performance, right? It is, yeah. I mean, she she's incredibly central. Yeah, obviously, obviously central, but also her performance carries the entire film despite the other strong performances around her. It's it's yeah, a really, really strong costume. strength of her performance. She's got agency. She's a decision maker. She's it's a you know it's 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 a it's a really tough role. I think she pulls it off really really well. Yeah, because she goes from basically yeah, necking a bottle of wine and crying in her bath um, yeah. to having to, 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 again, when they're locked in the panic room, I suppose it gives you time to to gather yourself because she's, again, trying to rally herself well in a, because, this, um, but she thinks of things. Again, she's not just responding. No, she's, she's not passive. She's, she's, she's trying to strip, she's, she's trying to, again, strip the phone wires and, and call out and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And interestingly, when she does call out, she the first person she calls is her husband, but she gets her, her ex-husband's new girlfriend on the line, um, played by Nicole Kidman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's got, like, eight words. Yeah, it's like, it's your bloody wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, again, Nicole Kidman, obviously, again, I'm thinking dead calm is the closest she'd have come to that kind of, you know, monster yeah. in the house kind of thing and yeah. again she's, she's a very good actress but it's it's yeah. i'm again it's because megan jodie foster again is notably short on the cole kidman and in fact was because she was short the um the the sensor on the door which is meant to be at head height is actually a bit shorter than it should be because they didn't oh, fix it, it after after them they said was the set was built for nicole kidman um, but i get there's something about the fact that yeah she is so much smaller than any of the guys around her and yeah. almost on a par with her daughter um in terms of in terms of their their, their stature yeah yeah um, but but there is that moment when she actually manages to to fling Raoul to the ground yeah thereby relieving him of his coat and gun and he leaps back into the panic room so there's there, there's a lot of fire in the way she's actually when, when the panic room does shut and sarah's on the wrong side of it she is throwing herself at the steel door is, um, yeah. in, in just desperation and anger um which it doesn't help Raoul because his fingers are trapped there so every, every slam against it hurts his fingers too which is quite hilarious well, you Right. And it's, it's it's a very physical role, isn't it, from, yeah. from Jodie Foster? And you know she's she looks strong in it as well. So it's a, it's a really physical role. She she pulls it off brilliantly. Which interesting because she was she was pregnant during the filming. Um, yeah, and, which is yeah, crazy. <laughs> which when you when you and they, they had to I think they had to wait until she'd had the baby to come back and do the reshoots because it yeah, was they did, yeah. double. Yeah. So when you think that they lost Nicole Kidman out of a slight knee injury, yeah. I'd say having a baby is probably more of an inconvenience <laughs> than a knee injury. <laughs> Well, they <laughs> were yeah, so committed they, by that point. Yeah, I know. Well, there's uh, there's a about about two thirds of the way through the film when she's out of the panic room, and um, she goes to answer the door to the police. She puts a jumper on, oh, yes. and um, that apparently was because some of the original shots or some of the the, the rushes from the film, um, she she had to hide her her bump. So she was quite a long way gone yeah. um, when when the film was kind of you know released and stuff. So the, the jumper was to hide her bump. Um, you could do the, the sitcom thing of carrying a big bag of crisps in front of you. <laughs> it's like I'm just having some crisps. Well, shame you don't have sugar in them. I could say, I've got to think about how to get into the room. Hang on. I tell you I'll what, just though, have if, this if big bag was, of Doritos. If I was in a situation and I had to think, I'd get a big bag of crisps, I think I'd need them. Yeah, I think I would. I'd, I'd just oh, well, cramming yeah. into what's it. <laughs> the police would find me with you my fingers all orange and put orange dust on my face. It's like, you think, right? yeah, fine. Is there any problem? It's four in the morning. I'm just having some watches. <laughs> is there anything you can say, sir, that might alert us to a problem in the house? Just having more watches. <laughs> would you like a watch-it? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah, $48 million. Um, 
a lot of it went on the house. Interestingly, though, the uh, obviously the previous film was Fight Club, uh, and that cost like, about sixty-five million dollars. And the one before that was The Game. And I know, much to your credulity or your, or your incredulity in the in the last podcast, The Game cost upwards of eighty million dollars. Um, yeah. So by comparison, Panic Room was was a was a, a small budgeted film. Uh, I mean, it, on a par really with Seven. Seven was slightly less, but. Um, um, you know, not 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 hugely um, diff, different in in the, in the kind of budget activity. Yeah, but when so that, seven had helicopters and police cameras and, and yeah, lots yeah, of prosthetics. Yeah. Yeah. This was this is what again you'd call in a, in a TV series a bottle episode. It's it's getting a few strong characters in a confined space and filming it. And normally they do it to save money. And the fact that you know if in in sort of scale, if you look at this as one set and few actors, it's more expensive than say seven or yeah. or um, the game because that uses so many more actors and so much bigger sets and bigger set piece so is it this is quite distilled yeah. in fact it's like per square meter yes. panic room is the most expensive film david fincher has <laughs> yes. ever done yes. <laughs> he wants to do it like yeah, but you know i spent 400 million dollars on a, on a globe trotting espionage film yeah but you know that doesn't count per square meter panic room is <laughs> your most expensive film like that's how you measure films <laughs> <laughs> the footage of uh, yeah but uh, um but I, actually now I, th- I tell you what there was again quite a lot of you can use of this space in terms of you know, yeah. good oh, yeah, but, but um and i only i've i've seen this film many times like i um i saw it again first about 15 years ago now and i've, I've, I've watched it periodically when you say i just like to watch a good film and yeah. the work that's done in this i when i was only watching it with a weekend at crombies 2 the legend of crombies gold i to, to review it i was um it's things like the camera pans up through the floors. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and well, yeah, I, yeah. So the, the a lot of the budget went into the digital effects. So they were, yeah, yeah. Um, they were obviously the 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 what for, for for someone who hasn't seen the film, we're describing the film in the context of its plot and its kind of machinations. But I think one of the main characters in the film is David Fincher. <laughs> yeah. um, it really, I really do because. One of the one of the one of the really really interesting things about how this is filmed is that as you've just described there, Hugh, it's not static at all. The direct the the it's it's not really the direction, but the the camera eye is free flowing and isn't limited to the space yeah, that yeah. it's confined in. So, for example, as you say, it will move through floors and in between walls. It will go into um, locks and out of locks. It yeah. will go through. Um, it will go through the cable that the methane gas is going in into the room. You know, it's that kind of it's, it's that that obviously you couldn't get a camera through, you yeah. couldn't get a camera in, you couldn't get a director in or a, or a person. So it's all digital effects, and actually, even things that don't need to be digital effects often are digitized. So there's one yeah. scene where um, uh, the, the camera pans from the front door through into the kitchen and out into the kind of the, the kind of patio bit out the back. And it, it, it pans over the kitchen kind of uh, central island, over the table as well. And it's, I mean, it, it looks it looks a bit like a digital effect now, it has to be said, you know, 20, 20 odd years, nearly 20 years later. But it doesn't deny the effect of what David Fincher is trying to do, which is you've got the, it's the omnipresence of the camera, of the yeah. eye, right? And that's, that's one of the really interesting things about the film. One of the really effective thing, things about the film is that in the panic room, you've got the CCTV, right? Yeah. And so the panic, the people in the panic room can see what's happening outside, but actually it doesn't really help them or, or it, it, it can both help and hinder them. And it's only, it's only later on in the film where um, Meg um, sledgehammers the video cameras 
so they don't know where she is or what she's doing. And there's a the, great the, moment. Raoul just looks at Burnham and goes, yeah, what did I we think, think of that? What did we think of that? And that's actually when she ha- she starts to get the upper hand. But the, ca- the, 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 the directorial camera is still there, all pervasive, all seeing, all knowing. And that's, that's what's re- I, what I really loved about it. That is interesting because actually for a thriller that has a lot of surprises in it, I don't think the audience are really held in the dark or misled. I don't think there's a lot of times where we don't know what's going on. Like even the the biggest con is when Burnham and and, um, Raoul pretend they they, they switch the body to Stephen. So and even then you see what's happening through through Meg's eyes. But then you immediately are told, oh, no, it's um, Raoul wearing Stephen's coat and they're going to jump. So there's no you don't get surprised. You're thinking your suspense is what's going to happen now. They've got their trap set. Meg knows a certain amount of information all of it but you're yeah. never in you're, you're never in anyone's position you're never just seeing meg's eyes you're never just seeing burnham's eyes you're you get everything which is but yeah i, I think, think that's we think would kill suspense purpose. you think that yeah, would, well, yeah. would be the death of suspense yeah. but it's not it's not it's the other way around and i think i think that's what's that's what i really really like about the film it, it, in the sense that I, it's a deliberate decision by david fincher to say i'm going to show you everything yeah i'm going to show you everything so um, there's no tricks there's no, this isn't cheap. This, you know, we're not cheating here. Nothing's going to happen in this film that you think, how did that happen? Or, oh, right. Okay. Thanks. That's a, that, that, that's a, a, a twist. Yeah. There's nothing like that in it. It's all there in front of you. You've just, you don't even need to work it out. It's all there in front of you. The point of the film is to be a thriller, yeah. right? You don't need, you don't need people hiding in corners. It's a thriller. And that fact, in, in fact, the fact of it being um, so kind of visually open creates the tension because you know exactly where everyone is you know what's going to you 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 think you know what's going to happen um and even as you as you say they do the bait and switch you kind of know what's happened anyway because the camera lingers on the two shoes so the camera lingers on on um the husband's shoe and the camera lingers on raul's shoe so you think to yourself something's going on here right because why would they do that so even in that situation you kind of know what's happened um and, and and that for me is the um, I can't think what the word is, but it's it's almost like it's the surveillance. It's the start of that kind of surveillance lifestyle yeah. approach, right? Where everything is filmed, yeah. but it's not the CCTV cam, the CCTV cameras that help in the end. It's for the audience. David Fincher has laid it all out in front of you. Yeah. He's laid it all out meticulously. It is interesting the CCTV. I'm thinking about it because again, Jodie Foster destroys the cameras to give her the edge. It is in fact the fact that um, Burnham and Raoul didn't destroy the cameras allows them to fool Meg because if Meg Meg thinks she has a certain amount of control by seeing what they're up to, which in fact is is turned against her because she sees something that is not true. And in yeah. fact, if she was completely blind, she might not have taken the chance to to make a dash for it anyway. Yeah, you're right. And, and and again, that's what I mean by it being upfront and open about what it's doing, right? It's yeah. not trying to trick you, right? So um it, it it's it's the example of it's the example of Meg and Sarah sometimes having the upper hand, and Burnham, Raoul, and Junior sometimes having the upper hand. Mm. Neither of them have the full hand. And that's why it's so good. And the director shows you both sides. And yeah. and, and it's it's not even that it's a puzzle. It's not a puzzle at all you don't need to solve anything yeah you just you almost need to just sit and go with the ride yeah yeah you're, you're enjoying what they're doing there's, enjoy there's a great it, yeah. there's a great moment after um the uh <laughs> it's 
after there's a moment when when um, Burnham is flooding methane gas into the the vents, and Meg takes a decision to ignite that and basically burn it out, but it'll mostly blow back onto them. Yeah. Um, as she's doing this, she's she's pushing the light as far down the vent as she can. She's going to it when it goes off, and um, and Rajuna hears the, the the clacking, so he he puts his head ear against the wall to listen to what's going up, and of course that's how he ends up getting burnt because the, the explosion blasts out and sears his arm, and then. Uh, about 10 minutes later, Meg is trying to pull the phone cord out that she can basically hack into the wire and call the police. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now Burnham is listening and Junior, with this Just sort of expertise, goes, be careful. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so yeah. Like, I, those walls explode, you know. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's one of those things where um, both sides have advantages and disadvantages at that point, right? So um, Burnham, um, you know, he's asking Junior, did you when you cut the phone lines, did you cut them actually at the, at the, at the, at the foundation down in the basement? Junior's like, just rip the phone out of the wall. Oh, should I have done that? Yeah, I didn't do it. You totally and so, Junior, I don't think you saw it, but you totally knew Junior would have just torn the phone out of the wall and burn yeah, exactly. too. Yeah. He goes, do you yeah, cut it at yeah. the mains or do you just rip it out of the court? Uh, but he already knows the answer, doesn't he? Yeah. So he, he, he's then trying to get, he's, he's thinking, okay, right, well, I need to get the phone cord from where the, the panic room is. And just as he's got the phone cover off, they're all like, oh, hey, there we go. And it's yanked in as um, as Meg's got it. So then at that moment, she's got the upper hand. She can connect the, the phone from inside the panic room to her mobile. And you think, okay, right. But you know also that Burnham knows they what to do. They can cut it. Centrally. They can cut it as well. They've just got to get down the bottom. Yeah, exactly. So it, then it becomes – the film is a series of mini – chases in separate locations almost isn't it right it's a it's a it's a series of kind of setups all of which need to be worked out sometimes someone has the upper hand at another time another person has the upper hand and that's why it's so thrilling yeah and again uh, we've we've talked about the performances again it's we talk about Jodie Foster's performance and it's interesting that I mean there's a couple of actors here again who are absolutely top-notch and they it's it's great to see them sort of commit to what is something that it depends on it on them selling it but it's not if you see what I mean like Acting, acting in terms no, of the, no, no, no one no. makes a big they long over, speech. Yeah, no. they, they're they, not they, over they, Yeah, they're just true to the characters they've established and they're yeah. playing them to the hilt, and it's brilliant. Interestingly, that a note about Burnham was um, the the test audiences didn't like the fact that Burnham didn't get away. In fact, yeah, because Burnham has basically Burnham returns to to kill Raoul, and by doing so, he could have got away if he'd just left them to it. Um, but he comes back, and then by the time he can he makes a second escape, he's caught by the police, and the audience didn't like that. So. Um, I think no, they, I, admit, I don't like that either. We'll come to the end, yeah. but the, the way they sold that was because they'd struck the set by this point, it would, get, it would cost like another three million to redo the set. So they thought what we have to do is go back to the original footage and try and replace the original cuts of Burnham with places where he's a little less sympathetic, um, which is interesting because I thought, what on earth were those less, those more sympathetic shots? Because Burnham's a really nice guy. It's a uh, because even at the point where they're leaving with their hostage Sarah and um, and Meg's put crushed glass over the floor to to, to fool them, you know, he, he instantly picks up Sarah and carries her across the glass where her feet don't get cut and this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I guess that the fact that he is. He's he's with Raoul too. He, he threatens Junior just before Junior gets shot, not thinking Junior's going to die, but he is he's prepared to be tougher if he has to be. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, although he although he isn't he isn't the person that beats up Stephen Altman, um, the the husband, he's complicit, right? Yeah. I mean, he's forced a little bit because Raoul's just a psychopath, yeah. but at the same time, he's telling them, um, he he's telling Meg and Sarah via the CCTV, um, open the door. 
Yeah. This will stop if you <laughs> open the door. So, you know, yeah. he, he, he has a, he, I suppose he has a moral compass in that regard, but yeah. at the same time, he is complicit in it. I get yeah. that. I get yeah, that. To, yeah, to talk about his escape, um, it's that, I guess, what you could what you could say was, I mean, yes, he's going to jail for a very long time, and no, he doesn't get the 22 million in bonds. Yeah. But I suppose the one way he gets his sort of victory is he is not complicit in the murder of Meg and Sarah, which he would have been if he had not been. turned back. Yeah, true. And that, yes, that yes. in many regards, yeah. is you could you could argue is more important because he never wanted to hurt them, and if he you know lived in the high if life, he had gone, or, or yeah, probably he, on the run, yeah. they would be dead because they were about to die, and he knew yes because you know he basically enabled Raoul to do all that. If he hadn't been there, Junior Raoul would have been stuck and would have just gone. No, I I agree. I mean, when you when again when you work it through logically, um, for him for him to go back and save Meg and Sarah, he has to have been caught. There's yeah. no logic, there's no there's no route out of that, which again I think is a it's it's an example of the film not not cheating you, right? I, I just wanted him to escape. <laughs> and, 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 and I have to say this is this is one of the I, I think the film's great. I think the film is brilliant. Um, but if, if there is a flaw in the film for me, uh, it's not a major flaw, and I'm nitpicking a little bit here. It's that actually toward the very end of the film. The person I cared about most <laughs> is Burnham, <laughs> and, and and it's not to say that I didn't care about Meg and Sarah, you know, and I, I did absolutely care about them. But I was rooting for Burnham. I wanted Burnham to get out of the house and go. I would have. I mean, look, okay, it would have been a bit of a down in the film. But if if the if, if what had happened was from Fincher's logical point of view, yeah. Meg and Sarah were killed, but Burnham got out, I'd have taken that. <laughs> I'd, have taken, I'd have taken it right you're right at this point at that point you are rooting for burnham and it's mostly because yeah by, by the time that raul is even though yeah, he's he's threatening meg's meg's life um you kind of think they could have they they, they didn't overpower him but you know, they had a gun um raul had been thrown off a balcony with a sledgehammer you'd think he's done for so you your next priority in which sense was yeah i'd like burnham to get away to be honest although you know, ultimately, what I wanted for Burnham was him to turn around the minute he got in the house and realise he made a mistake. Yeah, um, well, that is the tragic. That is the tragedy in the film. Is that? Well, Burnham, that's why he's. It, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? That's the tragedy. If, if there were three, if there were three idiotic burglars, or even three intelligent burglars that just were prepared to do anything to get that money, it becomes a different kind of film, and you you don't get the heart with it. The fact that you, your heart breaks a little bit when you realise what what Burnham is step by step getting himself into, because he he is initially. He thinks he's on video. That's the thing. And, and when he realizes later he's not, it's another little tragic comic. But he's he thinks by walking into the house he's committed. You know, when Junior gets killed, he's even more committed. Um, yeah. When when they you know when um, they, they, it's step by step. When they take Sarah hostage, that's another commitment. And he's just getting deeper and deeper. And there is no really good way out for him. And it's it's just that's the tough part of it. <laughs> no, no. Actually, actually, one more thing on the film actually is the um, yeah. you mentioned the film um, influences. I think one was the Gold of Sierra Madras, um, yeah, yeah. which which again has the characters utterly motivated by greed, which is getting yeah. for the, the bearer bonds and the fact that these bonds, which I was thinking they're, they're not receipts for a bank or, or combinations to a vault. That's the money. That's the actual money. It's the fact it blows in the wind. Nobody gets it. The family don't inherit it. The burglars don't get it. Even the police don't get it as evidence. So yeah. there's two million go up in smoke and. Um, Again, as it with the Gold of Sierra Madras, nobody gets the, the hall in the end because they were all so greedy for it. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wonder, again, so, now, now this seems to be what's the home invasion genre? Because that, like, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, ho- films, thrillers and horrors prey on a popular 
fears and you know home invasion is a big one Oh, it is, yeah. I guess the I problem guess. is most people's houses aren't big enough to get a good film. It's like if, if someone invaded my house, they'd get like three stairs and they'd be in the bedroom. It's like it's, there's no way to flee. Like I can't outmaneuver someone in my house. Like, <laughs> it's like give me a minute to get the attic stick down and I can go up the attic. Would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> It'd be that, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're right. There isn't really anywhere to go. Do you need a mansion? You can't hide anywhere. I mean, yeah. that, is, that, is, that is one of the things with um with with Meg and Sarah, they are phenomenally wealthy. That's it's almost an unspoken thing. They they can afford get through their husband ex husband's pharmaceutical. He's clearly like a, a big name in in big pharma. Um, he has this. He can just basically buy with the, out of their pocket a New York three story brownstone, and it's just that is necessary for the plot. Um, it is, yeah. But well, it's something about American American houses anyway generally tend to be a bit bigger because land is a lot cheaper in America. Not, not in so. New York, it's not. Well, no, that's very true. That is very in true. Home Alone, you can imagine out in the suburbs they could yeah, but home, again, um Macaulay Culkin Kevin lives in a mansion. Um but yeah, you but can imagine I, I suburbs that, that mansion, that mansion's probably hundred and fifty thousand pounds in, in, in you know, that's that's probably what it is. Like we could all afford a mansion if we lived in Texas or Montana or something like that in America. <laughs> that where you think he lives? Does the snow not clear you in? Well, you might live, you know, at altitude. They do get to altitude. He's on a Texas mountain. Do you think Home Alone is set on top of a Texas mountain? <laughs> no, I don't think that. I was just putting it out there as a point of <laughs> I'd put it back in if I were you. you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that many a time. Um, as, as you were, what, sorry, what were you going to mention? Well, the, the home invasion thing's interesting, and and the fact that Meg and Sarah are ultra rich, you know, and I, th- I think they're, they're although they're not independently wealthy, I, I think it is suggested quite early on that Meg is also uh, you know she's successful in the career that she has as well right so she, you know she, they're not wanting for anything but um th- there's there's a, a few tropes in the film which I, I found um uh, kind of w- worth discussing so um there's another home invasion film called Get Out I don't know if you've seen that oh no um, I don't that's a home invasion film um with with much more of a horror inflection but um for me, Panic Room kind of does reflect on quite a lot of the, the there's kind of racial and kind of gender um, kind of com- uh, topics going on here as well, because there's a point quite early in the film where um, Meg, uh, uh, she's, um, you know, what, what do, I think it was the real estate agent that says, you know, women want to feel secure, don't they, in their homes. So the Panic Room has been put in, which, and actually you find that Meg is, <laughs> pretty pretty damn strong um anyway but also there's the idea at the end where um, and, and this is touched upon a little bit in in um, other films of this type as well where you've got forest Whitaker's the black man that comes back to sacrifice himself for the rich white couple or the rich the rich which which i don't know whether that's deliberate or not um but is I, i'm not even sure that it leaves a sour taste in the mouth Perhaps, it's it's, but, it's interesting um, if you switch the roles. If if say uh, Burnham and Junior yeah. flipped around, and exactly. um, and Burnham was the solid blue collar worker, you know, with honest, and Junior was again the Weasley yeah. nurse who'd betrayed his his, yeah. his previous master. Um, it's it's like if they, those races were, were flipped. That would be a lot more uncomfortable. But it, it's it, it, often there's a case where um, the, the the black character has to sacrifice themselves. Yeah. for the white characters in the film and you know they're, they're almost treated reverentially right so at the end i mean <laughs> burnham's final scene in this is is him in a kind of a male very sh- sure shanky oh it is it is right it's very sure shanky yeah so he, he's almost given some kind of redemption there yeah. you know even if he isn't even if he's not caught and, and, and 
he's not allowed free and so on. So he's Which, yeah, he, the, the, the police searchlights are on him as he has to spread his arms out um, to, you know, to show, as the police are telling him to, but he's also looking up into the light with his arms aloft as the uh, the, the wind and the leaves and the, the, the money yeah. flies around him in circles. And that's, that's the last we see of Burnham. It's a slightly weird ending because I, I am quite sure what what is it what, what's the purpose of that <laughs> other than just theatricality? <laughs> well, theatricality that's the purpose. Oh, yeah, it's good enough. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, there's you're, there's you're quite, that. quite right there that, they, that, that Burnham is the obvious choice as the person who would have the heart of gold, and again would would have to sacrifice themselves so that yeah, Megan Sarah can continue to live their yeah. happy, wealthy, privileged lives. Yeah. You know, he references it as well, doesn't doesn't he? Yeah. When when Sarah is. Uh, when he's talking to Sarah, are you, are you, are you rich? She goes, no, dad's rich. Mum's just mad. Well, that's not quite true. Um, I think mum's rich as well. But, which actually also reminds me that I think um, Kristen Stewart deserves a bit of praise as well because she's she's got a, she she performs really well. And I'm a I'm a huge fan of Kristen Stewart. Um, I think she's a brilliant actress. Um, and I mean, notwithstanding the Twilight films, which are, I, I think are a little bit unfairly maligned they they serve a purpose and that they they certainly do well for the market that they're intended at i think post um twilight films she's not she's had a really interesting career i was um, saying she's not, deliberately gone for yeah unusual roles as, as a kicker yeah. as well uh, if you've not seen um personal shopper i would hi- highly recommend that and the clouds of Sils maria as well two very good films that she's done recently um excellent films i think uh, as as mainstream a thriller as you can get I think Panic Room is. Um, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that if it's done really well. Um, you know, it, it, the, I think Panic Room is pure entertainment um, and it's done brilliantly because of that. But it's totally perhaps not what you might expect at that point in Finch's oeuvre. So maybe we'll take a break and come back and discuss why. Indeed. Anyway, that's that. Maybe you ought to talk about David Fincher a little bit now. Uh, this is um, David Fincher's first film in the 2000s. It follows directly after the Fight Club. Um, and um, it, it, I think it's a bit of a surprise, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if, you look at, um, if you look at Fight Club particularly, it's a very extravagant film filled with ideas. I think actually Fight Club's probably dated more than quite a lot of his other films. It has, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong, it's still a great film. But um, I think just the way that it's, maybe it's become a bit of a parody of itself more than anything else. And um, and so therefore, it's, it's unusual. But I don't know, I, I'm not sure that you would have expected David Fincher to do Panic Room straight after Fight Club. It's a very, uh, at face value, Panic Room is a very nuts and bolts film, right? It's yeah. a very straightforward film. But what Fincher brings to it is a directorial verve and a really great sense of storytelling in it okay so that's where i think that you, you, you it's still it's still very much a david fincher film but it's just it's a straight up thriller and you you know you don't ex- i just don't think you expect it but it, it certainly um perhaps it's the first example of a slight change in his focus in in filmmaking as well so um whereas before i think fight club the game and seven to a slightly lesser extent, but but still certainly are quite gimmicky in the way that they are. The story is presented, the things that happen in them. The they, I'm, I'm not saying that they're contrived. They're all good films, but they are. They're very um. They're very 
uh, I don't know, the, the plots are quite detailed and the, 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 there's a hook in them, I guess, really. Panic yeah. doesn't really have any of that. And neither does Zodiac, um, the film that directly follows Panic Room, which is a, um, a police procedural stroke um, investigative journalism film about yeah. the um, Zodiac killer. Yeah, it's um, a historical one, isn't it? It's a, yeah, it's a historical yeah. film. And I'll be honest, I, my own personal view, I think Zodiac is David Fincher's best film. Um, I absolutely love it. I think it's a brilliant film. It's a real homage to the um, kind of analog era of investigative journalism, and it, it totally ticks all my boxes. Really, I see, I've seen it. I've seen it once, and it didn't didn't take with me. So I maybe I should watch it again because it it just again I didn't quite click. Yeah, it. Um, I, I I think I think it's a brilliant film, but but it, it's a it's a film a little bit like Panic Room, which is a it's a straight up film. There's nothing there's nothing at face value which is um unusual about it there's there's no pyrotechnics if that makes sense in terms of the storytelling there might yeah. be pyrotechnics in the way that it's filmed and the way that the, the story is told but there's no pyrotechnics in the narrative the story or the script it's just a really good interesting film and panic room is very much like that now what's also interesting is that panic room up till up till that point in david finch's career um after Seven was his most commercially successful film as well. So it cost $48 million. It made $197 million. So I I tend to think that Panic Room is a bit of a lost film for David Fincher. But it's one of his most successful films. That's what I was thinking too. Because, again, I if, if those who know Panic Room would, don't have a bad word to say about it, you know, it's, it's, it's well-remembered. Yeah. If it is remembered, why I don't think it is remembered much. Like, yeah. if you talk why about... Is it, why isn't it more remembered? Yeah, because because I think it's because you say it, it doesn't have that big hook. Like I say, the uh, Seven Fight Club, they have the big hooks. Even Benjamin Button has this very obvious big hook, yeah. um, and and Panic Room just seems to have been lost as this very well preserved jewel that that is is well made, but it's it somehow hasn't managed to cut through. Despite the fact that clearly a lot of people saw it at the time and really enjoyed it, it's it's a strange well, one. Hugely successful film, although I suppose when you compare it to Seven, which was stratospheric right yeah. i mean that you know it was different but <laughs> uh, i guess similar budget, similar budgets, yeah. just a massive massive success i guess there's a difference between again a a, a well-made successful film and then a film that actually bites into the culture because you could you could do yes. a parody of seven like on a comedy show and everyone go that's seven fight club as well couldn't you and the game Oh, yeah, yeah. Films parody. You couldn't yeah, parody. Yeah, I mean, people would say the first rule of blah blah blah, and people think, oh, you're doing the Fight Club thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This this doesn't have those hooks, and in fact, I think because it's it's it doesn't have those kind of flashes. It's the directorial style feels more at ease with itself. Like again, he'd he'd had his his big smashes, and he he knew he was a successful director with commercial clout, and it felt like he was able just again to do that omnipresence stylistic. I agree. I and agree. It's, it's like I, I don't need to because because seven and both Fight Club have flare moments. So like there's things in there that is because he started in music videos, didn't he? It's quite a kind of a, yeah, yeah. A, a, you can tell. I'll throw this absolutely. out there and I'll yeah. and I'll catch your attention. And here it's like, well, I've got your attention, and I'm yeah. not do anything clever. I'm just gonna, well, you know, lots of things clever, but I will don't I don't do thing, you know. I don't have to throw any curveballs. I'm just going to do you a really well-told story in a really well-told way. And that's what it came out as. And, and, and yeah, you're right. Because, um, yeah, completely agree. I think this panic room is that, uh, who, who am I to say that David Fincher needs to mature, right? But this is, this for me is, is the first film which shows a bit of kind of development and maturity about his filmmaking as well, right? So Fight Club, The Game 7, Alien 3, maybe it's a slight anomaly, I guess, really. But Fight Club, The Game in 7, uh, 
almost feel like they're him showing off a bit, right? They're him showing off and, and going, right, this is this is what I'm about. Panic Room isn't that at all. It's yeah, which, a, which is a career. Again, if it's a director in oh, Hollywood, God, which is yeah. what you have to do. It's like, here's, here's what I can do. I can, oh, I can yeah. be commercial and I can, I'm, I'm an interesting director. I'm not criticising those three films, right? I'm... I'm 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 a paid up member of the David Fincher fan club. Absolutely, you know, I, I you know of all of his films, I think there's probably only one which I'm not massively keen on, and that's the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But yeah. there's still stuff to admire in that film. Yeah. But um, but for me, this is this is him moving into a different phase where it's not about the showiness necessarily. It's about constructing a quality film. Yeah. So I think Panic Room, Zodiac, are two brilliant examples of a mid-career yeah. director yeah. at the top of his game. I was going to say that because again, I said didn't take to Zodiac, but thinking back on it, I can see how this pairs nicely with Panic Room. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, if we're looking at the career, Benjamin Button, what went there? That, that's a big, that's a magical realism step in a very different direction. That feels, again, like almost going back to like Fight Club, but nowhere near as challenging. Yeah, I mean, but but Benjamin Button has its advocates though um it has its strong advocates as well and it was lauded at the oscars i know it didn't win a huge number but it was nominated for a lot for a lot um and uh i i don't know i don't know i I think if you look at if you look at um finch's career post benjamin button i think you've got a point where maybe he had one last swing at the hook right (laughs) and then then thought i'm I'm probably done with that now maybe i've I've moved on a bit you know so it was almost him going back to his Uh, it's like one last fling with the hook i guess you only only get one chance to be a new and interesting director yeah 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 you're right and you know for for, for all for all that i found the curious case of benjamin Martin slightly stilted and and slightly odd probably because it's script more than anything else it it is boundary pushing in, in terms of its special effects and its um, yeah. and the way that it's told, right? So you know, I'll give it that, but um, it, it it just didn't feel fresh like the way Seven and and Fight Club particularly felt fresh, and it doesn't have that it doesn't have that strong for me storytelling central yeah. component like Panic Room and Zodiac. Yeah, I think we we came to the same conclusion with discussing the Coen Brothers is that they yeah. they they had some very outlandish films where they were getting their their craft in, and then when yeah. they hit they hit their run. But it, it leveled out a lot. It leveled out a lot. Yeah, you're right. And I think Miller's Crossing was maybe the first example of where it leveled out a bit. And uh, look, Miller's Crossing is a great film. Yeah, but Miller's the 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 flair of Miller's Crossing is not the same flair of say the Hudsucker Proxy yeah. or or or, or um, Raising Arizona. It's a different. It's a slower. It's still got a lot of flair in it, and that's why I think Panic Room is is a is a director with flair. Zodiac's a director with flair, but it's. It's more subtle. It's more about the production design. It's more about the art design. There's a lot, you know, in that. Um, whereas Seven, the game to a lesser extent, I guess, but but Fight Club certainly all about the show, all about the fight. And I think you know when we when we when we do the the 2010s, um, I think you you certainly move into um, a, a very kind of like you know mid to late career David Fincher. I'm not saying that he's he's a busted flush or anything like that, but um, when he's, he's got a 30 to 40 year career in movies. You know, that's, that's, and, a, you know, that, that's a heft. His 2010s films, the, the Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon to Do and Gone Girl, all stand up, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, they all stand up. But um, I, I, I mean, I do, got, I did, interesting, Gone Girl. 
I would say you, you'd put up there again. I, I really like it as a movie, but in terms of it's it's zeitgeist, it's up there with like Fight Club and Seven. Not quite Seven. Seven really was something different, but I mean Fight yeah, Club. In terms in terms of films, people reference when they want to talk about not just the movie, but about where society is at this point. They they yeah. pick up Gone Girl and they say, well, let's, let's look at this. Yeah. It picks up certainly the zeitgeist, definitely. I guess um, that was from a novel with... rather than from him himself. So he, ah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it, yeah. It, you have to, you have to do it where, of course. But well, Zodiac is from a novel as well, actually. I know. Is... What, I'm, what I'm thinking is, was Benjamin Button his original thing? Or was that from a book? Oh, uh, that's from a novel as well. Yeah. Okay, so it went was Panic. The Panic Room was an original screenplay. That's an original and, screenplay. So yeah. if you take you know, if you take Social Network. Fight Club, uh, yeah, Fight Club is an adaptation of a novel from Chuck Palahniuk as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Social Network was written. But it's again, it's a true story. But so that's it's sort of, you know, isn't it? Yeah, so but, it's it, yeah. but it was it was kind of it was kind of a commissioned um, play yeah. rather than a. So I mean, Panic Panic Room. Now I'm thinking is one of the few things that he did off his own back with his own idea that wasn't that, a, yeah, it wasn't a, right. it wasn't a novel in the first place or wasn't a kind of a commissioned work as well. Yeah, and and the other anomaly in his his um, his oeuvre in that regard is the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which you know is an adaptation from a novel, but it's also a remake from a, a, a Swedish original film as well, yeah. which. And, and you know, uh, there, uh, a lot of people criticise the girl with Dragon to Die. I think it's quite a good film, to be honest. I yeah. quite enjoy it. But it's it's a it's a it's a very definitely it the the tone of the film and the story is very Fincher esque. You can see why he would have taken it up. But what I wanted to say about the 2010s is I completely agree with you. There's a, he, he still manages to capture the zeitgeist, but I think that there's a there's a there's a distinctive line between um and a distinctive development between films like Fight Club and Seven. And films like Panic Room, Zodiac, and The Social Network. So I could, you can you can see the path to The Social Network beginning in Panic Room. I think yeah. um, because when I think about The Social Network, and you know, maybe we'll talk about The Social Network as the next film. <laughs> but when I think about The Social Network, there's nothing less interesting to me than to watch a film about Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and Facebook. And you know, I can't think of anything more boring. The film is outstanding. So. And that's to do with the script, but it's also to do with Finch's direction as well. So there's something there about some, you know, something that is ostensibly straightforward. Yeah. Just he, he, he raises it a level. And that's exactly the case with Panic Room. Yeah. There is something very straightforward about Panic Room. We discussed earlier pre-recording Panic Room is a film with and without a plot. Ostensibly, nothing happens in Panic Room, but everything happens in Planet Panic Room. If yeah. you look at it close enough. And that's all Fincher. So as a director, what is his strength? What, what's his USP to do this? I, He's, he's, uh, he has, a, for me, he has a number of strengths. He has a visual flair, which is very idiosyncratic. I don't think there are many other directors that you can, you can watch a film and go, that's, that's a Fincher film. Yeah. Easy. And it's, it's to do with the way that the film is shot. Um, Panic Room is a good example of this. There's no reason for Panic Room to be grainy and um, slightly washed out, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it is. And it, it employs the same tactics as in Seven and Fight Club, the, the bleach um, approach that's used and Alien Three, and Alien Three—it's the same thing that's happened in that as well. And um, it, it there's there's a kind of there's a link from his early films where he's you know uses thirty five millimeter shoots on film. Panic Room, I think, was the last film that did shoot on film. From Zodiac onwards, it's all digital, yeah. it's all digital video. And um, but Fincher is one of the few directors where I don't think you can really tell the difference too much. And often I find that the difference between a uh, shooting on film and shooting on on digital cameras. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you can't like a, a digital film, but they look and feel slightly different, right? So film has a filming on film has a slightly different feel to it. Yeah. So I think he has a visual flair. I think um, I think he is able to compartmentalize 
um, structures within films really well. So I, I think by that I mean the kind of the, the way that the films are structured are, are really clever in Fincher films. So um, there'll be there'll often be um, either um, puzzle driven, i.e., I'm not saying that Panic Room is, is like a puzzle, but it's it's laid out all in front of you. It's like a it's like a, um, a, a a drawing kind of room, as it were. You know, you, you know how everything's filmed. You know where everything needs to be. I think his films are meticulous like that. So I don't think I don't think there's anything in any film that Fincher makes that isn't supposed to be there, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel like that anyway. Um, and one of the examples is with Fight Club. There were 400 scenes in Fight Club. Okay, 400 scenes in Fight Club. I think there are something like 50 scenes in Panic Room. So. <laughs> You know, he shrunk it down, but still maintained his own style, right? I don't know yeah. about you. What do you think Fincher's look is? Is this uh, aesthetic? It's, it is this aesthetic. If you think aesthetic. about his films now, it, I think it makes great play of light or rather darkness. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a, a, I, I'm trying to, if, yeah, just the, the association, because I don't, I clearly seen and enjoyed a lot of David Fincher films, but until we tie this together, I hadn't actually clocked it as, oh, I've seen almost all of them and I've enjoyed almost all of them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you, when, now you say to her, I'm imagining just again characters cast in silhouette, imagining light behind them in whatever situation they are. It's yeah. it's the same in Seven, it's the same in Fight Club, it's the same in Alien 3, it's the same in almost Social Network. Too. I mean, same for, for, yeah, same to, social network. Yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't need to be, does it? But it is. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's that style. I mean, again, you think a difference between being on an alien planet and a movie about building a website <laughs> it doesn't need to be stuck in contrasting in light, but it but it is used like that. Um, it's the word that's used it, in it, art. It, Chiaroscuro, isn't it? It's okay. Chiaroscuro. So it's it's the it's the, it's the way artists use light and darkness to kind of counteract with each other, and he does it really well. I probably go with an economy of storytelling as well. You're I again I it's really yeah. bored in his movies. It's it's even in movies that again weren't my cup of tea. I can have to I'll have to watch the deck again now. But um, Benjamin Button I didn't particularly enjoy, but it wasn't the case of oh my god where's what you know. Just end it. I've had enough. Oh um, yeah, never that. Yeah, so it, it's yeah, it, it's it's a it's interesting because again, unlike I guess you could look at again as directors almost like Spielberg or whatever who have almost a very definitive style. This is almost like just doing it really well. <laughs> That's a terrible yeah. analysis for me. Oh, but it's, it's, it's incredibly yeah. well delivered yeah. storytelling. So I, I it's. The Spielberg analogy is quite an interesting one because I think Fincher is a more distinctive director than Spielberg. And the only reason why I say that is because I think sometimes directors like Spielberg are so ingrained into cultural consciousness that you you can't pinpoint what a Spielberg film does, right? Mm. So other than making, in his heyday, making entertaining action-packed films, like what does a Spielberg film look like? I understand... I can understand the, the the way that Spielberg films are portrayed, right? So, you know, family, it's all about, there's a kind of moral decision-making, all this kind of stuff. But in terms of how it's filmed, I just feel like Spielberg films action sequences really well. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's, 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 it's kind of place, it sounds technical, but placement of camera, like he, he does know you know where to get that in so you're yeah. given the correct information and when and that that even though i've not enjoyed some of his later films does seem to carry through it's, it's like this i'm it's, doing him a huge disservice right? yeah, <laughs> like, but i just think you, you can't almost you, you almost can't see what spielberg does because you've seen so many spielberg films and you can't remember not having seen a spielberg film before but i can remember watching seven for the first time and being bowled over. i can remember watching fight club i can remember watching 
panic room zodiac for the first time and go god wow that's brilliant um and you're right it's the composition of the film his use of light and darkness he constructs a film really well the pieces are all in the right place they're almost overproduced in some respects but they just teeter on it just pulls it back when he needs to i love the fact that he he has the same kind of lighting structure in a film as you've said about building a website as he does about an alien planet they look the same and yet they're totally different films weird and yet they work yeah and again we're talking about again a career that spanned four decades with a dozen films yeah it's it's not prolific it's it's not prolific it's 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 each one which does make each one kind of worthy of note because i don't remember (laughs) decades ago thinking oh yeah i've seen all the coen brothers films and now they've made about a dozen that i haven't seen and and, yeah We'll watch if they come up. I'm not chasing it. after them. Similar with Ridley Scott, actually. It's like he just chose yeah. that two a year. And it's like, well, yeah. slow wow. down. And Spielberg, right? And, you know, yeah. big Scorsese does it as well. And you think, oh, do you how many Scorsese films that I haven't seen? It's just like, um, I also find that Fincher is, so it's no, it's no spoiler, given that we are looking at a director that's done four decades of films. The one film he's made in the 2020s is Mank. So yeah. we'll be watching Mank because it's the only film we can watch from the 2020s. <laughs> Unless before we get to it, he releases another film. But we, we're going to watch Mank. Given if we said he's not prolific, him getting out of film in the next six months is unlikely. It'd be surprising, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be surprising. But, but uh, Mank feels, Mank looks like a completely different film to anything he's done before, right? Uh, you know, a homage to 1920s and 30s Hollywood, black and white. It's about the making of a film, very different style and tone. So really interested to me. Whether I like it or not, I have no idea, but I'm interested to watch it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, it's... Whereas I find, so, yeah. I find, I suppose my point was that I find with, with the with your Spielbergs and your Scorseses, that they all seem to tend to make the same film. Again and again. I mean, like I look at Scorsese's *The Irishman*. As good as it's, and it's a good film. Yeah. I feel like I've seen it before, though. That's the thing. It's like we talk about these you know, incredibly big name directors who are getting almost more prolific. Because um, yeah. you get, you imagine that the uh, the B the um, the B the was it the B team who the who, the assistant the directive unit are doing most of the, uh, the, yeah. the donkey. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Is it called B roll? I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, well, a cinematographer. Yeah, but even so, um, well, they always work with directors. But they, you think there's their their work increases, their um, their output increases. It dilutes a lot again, a lot of what there is about them. And you think, well, why? Why is it can't just be for the money or the, the kudos? Like, you know, does does Spielberg really to do the BFG or <laughs> Ready Player One? Well, I quite could, like could, BFG, but but yeah, but you're right though. Yeah, Ready Player One, uh, and that's exactly what I mean. They're the same. I uh, not the same films, but I can't differentiate between Ready Player One and the Tintin films. I mean, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Yeah, or, the or Tintin like, as well. It's like yeah, yeah it's like, what? But. But if you look at um, so Scorsese is a good example. I don't want to poo-poo Scorsese because, like, you know, Taxi Driver is what in the he might be listening. films of all time. <laughs> you might be listening, yeah. But when I think, okay, look, uh, um, The Irishman, The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I mean, they're different films, but they're the same film, aren't they? You've seen them all before. The Aviator, Shutter Island, they're the same film. In fact, Shutter Island feels like a David Fincher film. And what bigger homage there is to David Fincher that I'm watching a Scorsese film thinking, I'd rather watch this if it was directed by David Fincher. But it's not even recent for Scorsese. I genuinely, genuinely want to know what the difference between Goodfellas and Casino is. It's the same film. Yeah, yeah. Just in a different context. It's the same film using the same music style, the same directors, blah, 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 blah. They're good which films, is, but they're which is interesting because we, we've, we've talked about David Fincher 
not not getting into it le- leveling off from the, the the early work but never staying with the same film or genre or type so even though the, it's, it's like it's 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 leveled and it's plateaued essentially it's you know you go from panic room to zodiac to Okay, was it the girl with the drag tattoo to Benjamin Button? Button. Yeah, to the social, social network. network. They're different films, totally. Well, right? you, yeah, mind you, when, when I heard that, because um, obviously the social network was big news before it came out, and they say it was directed by David Fincher, you'd think, yeah, that works. You don't know how it would work. Yeah. But it would. Because yeah. well, part of me would think, well, how is David Fincher going to. Um, imprint his style on the social network how's he going to do that simply a biopic about something the entire world knows about at some <laughs> level about facebook how yeah, do you and, make that interesting yeah. To, yeah but he, but he does and it's the same with panic room how is david fincher going to put his 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 specific style on yeah. panic room and he does and it's it's great because of that and i i would add that although between gone girl which was made in 2011 can you believe Oh no, sorry, 2014 that was made, so mum's there. But even that's a long time ago. And Mank, which was made in 2020, is six years. I think I mentioned it in the last podcast. He has made Manhunter, um, two series of Manhunter for Netflix, which is brilliant. And I hardly ever watch TV programmes, but Manhunter is absolutely fantastic. And it's got the same look and feel to all of his other films. Just because it's a TV programme or, or a, a, a serial, yeah. he's put the same effort into it. And it's a, it's a Fincher film. It just happens to be over about 12 hours. Excellent. Well, that's, that's, that's next for us to watch. So don't say a peep about it. But I will probably have seen it all by the next time we speak. Ah, okay. Interesting. I, I think they're great. I think it's great. Excellent. We should take a little break and then we'll come back with our scores, which James has insisted we give, uh, for Panic Room. Welcome back. You can now hit the green button, slide back the bolts creep cautiously out into the darkened room with the crushed glass for we have finished our foray into panic room and all that remains is for us to give the scores and perhaps tease you a little bit about what we might be looking at next quarter mm-hmm. james would you like to give your scores for panic room yeah panic room um is uh, when you when you think about panic room i don't think you immediately think that this would be a david fincher film um, but actually, once you've watched it, you think, oh, yeah, that was obviously a David Fincher film. Brilliant. Well done. Um, I may be um, employing a little bit of hyperbole here, but I think that Panic Room is one of the greatest examples of a straight up entertaining thriller. As mainstream as it gets, but is absolutely nailed to perfection. Um, for what it is, it's pretty much peerless. So I'm going to give it five disembodied Crombie heads because there's nothing else I can give it. It's the perfect mainstream entertaining thriller. I've not seen a better one, I don't think. Very good. Um, for myself, I actually came to Panic Room Lee. I didn't see it in the cinemas. Um, it wasn't until again I uh, moved in with my then girlfriend, now wife, and mm. kind of found it in her DVD collection. Um, again, as soon as I, uh, I turned it on, absolutely fantastic. And it's... It's written. I tried to keep a lid on it over the last two hours we've been talking about it, 
but again it's absolute catnip for me it's a tight plot it's it's a it's a superb superb script it's great acting it is everything i say i want in a film and i couldn't change a thing about it and again it's not just i think my favorite david fincher film it's one of my favorite films full stop i I, it's it's a it's one of those films you have on standby to return to when you just think I just want to watch a good film. I just want to watch. I just want to sit back and enjoy something that I will find something new in to enjoy again, even though I've seen it a dozen times before. And I will just go away because, again, I, when I say I wish I'd seen it in the cinema, you know, in my youth when I used to go see lots of films myself, you'd you know, you'd go back on the bus home, you'd still be buzzing, you'd still have that. Oh yeah, of having seen the a adrenaline. Film. Yeah, you'd be, trans- and, you'd be transcendent, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd be just yeah thinking about it. And it's a bit sad I've missed that with with this film because I, I absolutely know I can see myself walking out of the cinema having seen this film thinking wow that was a movie. Um, but I, I can still see it now as often as I like. It is fantastic, no question. Five disembodied crombie heads. Brilliant. And you know what the best thing about it is is that it doesn't cheat you. It yes. doesn't cheat you at all. It, it, whatever happens in it could happen. Yeah. And that's brilliant. It's it's. It's got a lot to it, and it's interesting that um, again he, he he collaborated with the with the writer of, of was it Seven David Cope to do this, um, yeah. And it yeah. was almost like let's do our movie, and after that he's, yeah. he's done adaptations and he's done other things, but it was like this it almost feels like he's done his movie. Brilliant, yeah, it's a great film. What a film, cracking. Okay, one of the best films of the two thousands, certainly. Yes, and probably one of the best films of uh, Weekend at Crombie's The Legend of Crombie's Gold uh, run so far two films in <laughs> well they've both been five years it, they're, both they're all going to be aren't they it's 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 it's, a, it's you know what it's like uh what's that what's um it's like the darts it's like whoever misses treble 20 now oh, yeah. is in trouble yeah, it's, exactly. like, it's, it's yeah. not just about scoring points you've got to not miss treble 20 so uh yeah. so what what have we got for the next they were going to a decade and more we're now into the 2010s what oh, is yeah. uh, what's shooting for billy bullseye now <laughs> well, there, are, there are three films um, up for grabs uh, from David Fincher in the 2010, starting in 2010 with the Social Network, um, the story of the um, the emergence of Facebook and uh, a biography of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, then the Girl with the Dragon, the Dragon Tattoo. Although we actually say that David Fincher isn't uh, prolific, that was filmed one year after the Social Network. So there we go. So the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, 2011 remake of the. Swedish language film of the same name, which was obviously a filmed version of the book, of the uh, same very name. very popular book of the same name. Yeah, <laughs> although uh, it's interesting that Fincher hasn't directed any other uh, tattoo books, um, yeah. although they were made into a trilogy in in the Swedish language, uh, and then Gone Girl two thousand and fourteen as well. So we'll be choosing one of those three films for our third in the weekend at Crombies to the Legend of Crombies Gold oeuvre. I hope you will be joining us when that's released. And until that time, join us for our regular monthly output where we look at films um, that often receive significantly fewer than five Crombie heads. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. until that time, uh, I wish you a very happy and a very healthy weekend at Crombies. Good evening, all. Weekend at Crombies. And then for three days, you just you nail it. But the problem is, it's at the expense of every other piece of work you've got to do during those three days. You just pay them forward <laughs> as well. Then become the stress. It's like K-Packs, isn't it? Have you seen K-Packs? I oh, know, that's not it. K-Packs. You uh, pay um, it forward? Yeah, yeah, I mean pay it forward. <laughs> How do you pay it forward confused with K-Packs? Isn't it just because Kevin's facey? You pay it forward. Yes, he is. Is he? He's the, he's the bloke. He's the bloke? He's the, is he the bloke? What, he's, he's the, the real bloke. Estate? 
He's the real nice teacher that tells everyone to yeah. pay it forward. Yes. I did not That's... clock that. Of course it is. Yes. You did clock that. Because, <laughs> you know, it, uh, it was it was the Sixth Sense child, wasn't it? Elijah. Haley Joel Osment. Haley Joel Osment. Well, of course, uh, the, the, the bright star of Haley Joel Osment eclipses yes. everything else in that film. <laughs> yeah. And in all films he's in, the, the, those three little words <laughs> carry a lot of heft behind them. He, yeah, um, he shined so bright, but for half as long <laughs> as anyone else. <laughs> Haley Joel Osment, what happened to him? What did happen to him? It's not. That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I wasn't asking. Yeah, you get your you get your Haley Joel Osment file out. See what you did, what what you've not told me is that you have three other podcasts that you do with other people. One of which is purely about Haley Joel Osment. Okay. Pretend that you didn't know what his name was. Oh yes, that's it. <laughs> Haley Joel Osment. Oh cool. Whatever happened to him? You jest, but this is going to be a real fact. Somewhere in the world right now is receiving a newsletter about Haley Joel Osment. So the, the, the Haley Joel Osment update. There is a, there's probably a small but very devoted fan club of Haley Joel Osment fans. They've even got the name, they're called Josmanites. And, uh, and, and the, it's going out every Tuesday. Here's what we found out about Haley Joel Osment today. He's now an orthodontist. He shuns fame. <laughs> hasn't, made any, hasn't made any rumours about, about, about returning yet. Hey, let's all go watch Pay It Forward again. That was good, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> I like to think that they've chosen Pay It Forward as the film that they go back <laughs> to watch and, and not The Sixth Sense or AI. <laughs> <laughs> which infinitely better films i also like I, I prefer i prefer if if there was a group of you um, you know that the email is called pay it forward that that, that is it uh, <laughs> I it, yeah but i like to think that the group is they're not called the uh the, the, what are they called again the, the, the jo- yeah jo- i'd like to think they're called the haley's comets oh very good <laughs> <laughs> this is it <laughs> There's a, little, there's a third offshoot of Weekend of Promise, isn't there? <laughs> Haley's Comets. Haley's Comets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the films of Haley Joel Osment. There won't be a fourth episode. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. That could be quite good, actually, because you've got, you got three films in, like, you know, episode one, Haley. Episode two, Osment. <laughs> episode two, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> we feel it was the third film when he really embraced the Joel in his name. In fairness, um, The Sixth Sense and AI are pretty good films, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're pretty good. I don't mind my CV. Yeah, I'm not sure about Pay It Forward, but, I mean, that's the film that killed him, really. I mean, metaphorically, <laughs> obviously. Although he might be dead, I don't know. Did he die? <laughs> no, not, 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 the, uh, not Mr. Jaws. The, the character, didn't the character die in Pay It Forward? Yeah, it did. That was the whole point, though, wasn't it? Didn't he have, like, a... A terminal illness or something. I got thrown off a bridge or something. Oh, that's pretty terminal. (laughs) (laughs) A terminal case of gravity. Yeah, it wasn't terminal illness. It was a case of terminal velocity. (laughs) Oh, come on. Look at this. 